A Helios Airways 737 is on its way to Athens when the plane does not descend like it's supposed to. What caused the flight to eventually crash into a hill? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. And, and ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> in this Christ. corner, coming in at a modest <laughs> weight of something, <laughs> Brendan! <laughs> okay, that was much better than the first time. To be fair, he had time to think that out because we had a first time that we didn't use. <laughs> you can hear it in the blooper room. So we have successfully moved. We have, yeah, so much has happened in a week. Like really it's been a week and a half between recordings because of everything that's been going on. But, but in, in this week and a half, so much has happened. We moved. So we're doing this in a new room and a new setup, not different equipment. Please give us feedback. If somebody sounds weird, please tell us. Yeah. Things are different now. It's okay. You can't be too harsh though. I know my voice is odd. <laughs> okay, just be gentle. Be, be um, gentle. Brendan lives with us. He now. moved in with us now, so he's he's living with us. Miranda still doesn't, but we're not very far away at all. No. We're about the same distance, just in a different Literally neighborhood. like maybe a minute farther than where you were. Maybe. It depends on the light. And <laughs> <laughs> And then other giant news is Brendan got his pilot certificate, his private pilot certificate yesterday. Woo! Uh, yeah. Colorado's newest pilot. Well, somebody probably took a test today. Probably. But yes, as of yesterday, he was the, the newest, newest pilot that we know of in Colorado. So that's exciting. Congratulations. Hey, I gotta go crash an airplane by myself now. <laughs> oh, if you're gonna yay. do that, let us know so we can do an episode on it. We'll do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, now you can't have an instructor that's liable for that anymore. Well, I gotta get my commercial rating first, then I can crash, and then you can cover a commercial aviation crash. That's yeah. There you go. There we go. There so. we go. It's gonna be a while till you get your No, sneak peek, we will be covering a general aviation crash next week. Stay tuned. Yes, actually. Actually, one that probably a lot of you know about. Or have requested. Oh, thank you to David and Rebecca for joining the Patreon. And yes, that is the David with the amazing storytelling skills. Yes, he finally joined. Yeah, and then we had another one. And then one. Rebecca. Yeah. Also, thank you to Mike who has been a patron for a full year. Thank you. Wow. So much. I can't believe we had a patron for a full year already. Yeah. Thank you that, so much for your continued support. That is crazy. Good. Thank you for giving money. Oh, dear. We like money. <laughs> we like money. Okay. So with all of that being said, so what are we covering today, Nick? All right. So today we are covering Helios Flight 522. This is actually a subject we haven't really covered yet, so I'm kind of excited. Who and thank it? you to Alan for recommending today's Thanks, episode. Alan. Yeah. Alan! 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 I think Alan is actually from the UK. He is. Alan! Steve! 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 <laughs> oh dear. We will have a link to that particular video on our website now <laughs> for your reference. We're not making fun of your name, Alan. It's just a funny. I'm sure if if you've seen the BBC thing, then you know, I'm sure. So this crash occurred on August the 14th of 2005. This was a 737-300 with the tail number 5 Bravo-Delta Bravo Yankee. The airplane was registered in Cyprus, which is where it will originate, because the flight was from Larnaca Airport 
Normal Cyprus or North Cyprus? I don't know. Cyprus. It just said the island of Cyprus. Okay. It It's on the south coast of Cyprus. So yeah, it's in Cyprus. 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 Yes, true Cyprus. Okay. So, the flight was from Larnaca to Athens to Prague. We will be talking about the Larnaca to Athens part of this route. The captain for the flight was Hans Jurgen Merton. His first name is Hans Mer- Hans Jurgen. Hans Das Jurgen. <laughs> that's pretty sweet. Yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a great name. Hans to Jurgen clarify, Merton. Clarify, he is German. Yes, I was getting there. Obviously. <laughs> he is 59 years old. He had 16,900 hours total, of which 5,500 hours were on the 737. He previously flew for Interflug in East Germany, specifically. Oh, wow. yeah, Interflug, yeah. <laughs> for many years. <laughs> When East Germany was still yeah, a thing. Yeah, when East Germany was a thing. Yes. He was hired as a contractor for Helios during the... Holiday travel season. When they uh, needed to broaden their number of flights. Mm. Yes. In, I'm sure some of our European listeners can testify to this, but in Europe, more so than in the USA. In the USA... Like, summer travel season's kind of busy, and then the holidays and Spring stuff break. like... break. Yeah, spring break, but I mean, those still are kind of like a broad three-week to four-week period. That's fair. In most countries in Europe, it's like one week at a time. So families, all families travel in the same week. Yeah. So that's why they hire pilots as contract for holiday seasons, is because it's usually that all these countries will go on holiday or break at the same time. And so everybody's traveling at the same time. That that leads to a large congestion of people traveling for the holidays. Vacation, rather. The first officer for the flight was Pompos Charalambos. Hell Pompos, yeah. That Pompos, sounds very, very Greek. Pompos Charalambos. He was uh, actually from Cyprus. Mm. He was 51 years old. He had 7,549 hours total, of which 3,991 hours were on the 737. So both pilots were actually pretty experienced pilots. All things considered. The flight was due to depart Larnaca at 9 a.m. Okay, so times. We're going to talk about times really quick. Because the entire report was written in UTC, and then it had a note at the top that said, Greece time is UTC plus three. And maybe it was at the time of the report, but currently Greece time is UTC plus two. So I'm using the report time, which is UTC plus three, and I have translated all of these into that. I could be an hour off. I don't know. Why not just use UTC time? Because that wouldn't give anybody reference to what time of day it is. Which is ever so slightly relevant. So I'm sticking with this uh, UTC plus three thing. So the flight was due to depart at 9 a.m. from Larnaca. The crew reported for duty to the operations office at the airport at 8 a.m. to prepare for the flight before heading to the airplane. Six crew and 115 passengers were to board this flight. The aircraft took off from Wanaka at 9.07 a.m. and 13 seconds. At 9.11 a.m. and 21 seconds, the crew contacted Nicosia Area Control Center at their reporting point of Losos, L-O-S-O-S, as they were climbing through 10,000 feet, climbing to flight level 200 or 20,000 feet. The air traffic controller reported having the flight on radar and then requested their final cruising altitude. The captain then told him that their planned cruising altitude was flight level 340 or 34,000 feet. 
The air traffic controller granted the climb to 34,000 feet and cleared the flight to proceed direct to the Rodos VOR. The captain acknowledged the clearance. This was the last communication the flight would have with air traffic controllers. Dun, dun, dun. However, something very different happens from our normal flights. Where that happens, because this isn't the end of the flight. At 9.12 a.m. and 38 seconds, the aircraft was climbing through 12,040 feet when a warning horn began sounding in the cockpit. This warning would normally alert the pilots that the airplane is not configured for takeoff, but they had already taken off. So... Why is it sounding? Do they need to get ready for their second takeoff? <laughs> yes. Totally. Take off part two? P- take off part two. Where you take off from the air. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also known as a climb. A climb. Yeah. But they're but already, already climbing. climbing. Mm. Well, I guess that's a problem then. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't configured to climb when mm. they were climbing, I guess. I don't know. Not configured for their takeoff in the climb. In the climb. There yes. we go. Yes. Math. Yes. <laughs> Is that math? Science. 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 <laughs> so needless to say, the pilots were very confused by this because they were not on the ground and not preparing to take off anymore. At 9.14 a.m. and 11 seconds, the captain called the airline's operations radio. He reported to them that the takeoff configuration warning was on and that the, quote, cooling equipment normal and alternate offline, end quote. This is basically the air conditioning system for the uh, airplane. I figured. The cooling system for the airplane was offline, was what he was saying. The dispatcher at the operations office, talking to the flight, requested an in-duty company ground engineer to communicate with the captain. So an actual like company engineer who knew more about the airplane. Mind you, this is a pretty small company. They have like three planes. Uh, four at the time. Yes. So grabbing a guy from the hangar isn't a big deal. Yes. The captain reported to the engineer that the ventilation cooling fan lights were off. The engineer asked the captain to confirm that the pressurization panel was selected to auto. The captain then asked the engineer, where are the cooling fan circuit breakers? The engineer told him that they were behind the captain's seat. The engineer told the captain that the cooling fan lights being off was normal, actually. And the two conversed about this for a while, and these lights, and this led to a lot of confusion between both of them. Who's flying the airplane? The, the captain is. He's pilot in command. Okay. And he's the one on the radio with... Originally, yes. the first officer was on the radio. Yes. Okay. But then he jumped on... So the, the first officer was talking to the air traffic control. The captain is the one talking to operations, because he's trying to figure out what's wrong with his airplane. Okay. So, but this whole thing about these lights for the cooling system being off is confusing the captain. Because the lights are off, and apparently that's part of normal operations, and that's what the engineer is trying to tell him. But the captain's I'll... saying, well, no, they're off. Like, it's not operating. As the conversation between the captain and the operations office was happening, the crew were unaware that the passenger oxygen masks deployed when the plane was at about 18,000 feet. Um, okay, so they have a depressurization? The masks just dropped. That's all they know. Okay. The captain and the first officer didn't know that a little after 9 20 a.m as the flight was passing through 28,900 feet the dispatcher called the flight again but there was no response at 9 23 a.m and 32 seconds the aircraft leveled off at flight level 340 their pre-programmed altitude yep at 9 29 a.m the dispatcher contacting nicosia acc which is their 
center controller, basically, and asked them to contact the flight at 9.30 and 40 seconds to 9.34 and 44 seconds, the air traffic controller called the flight but did not receive any response. At 9.35 a.m. and 49 seconds, the air traffic controller called the flight to request that they, quote, squawk, stand by, and squawk, or, and quote. So they're talking about putting in a specific code. Just to, changing this code would tell them, okay, they don't have any radio contact, but they hear me. Mm. So that's the hope. That didn't happen. 9.36 a.m. and 12 seconds, Nicosia contact the controller Athenai ACC, so also Athens Center Controller. Yes. To report that the flight was, quote, over point Eveno, E-V-E-N-O, and does not answer. If he calls you, let us know, end quote. 9.37 a.m. and 27 seconds, the flight entered the Athenai airspace, 10 nautical miles south of Eveno. The flight did not call Athenai air traffic controller. So they're still not talking to anybody, and now they've transferred airspace. The flight continued toward Athens on its scheduled flight plan, hitting all of the waypoints along the way. So it actually... So they're flying. Flying the route. They are where they're supposed to be. Yes. They're just not answering air traffic control. Yes. 9.39 a.m. and 30 seconds, Nicosia ACC called the emergency frequency 121.5, but there was no response from the flight. So maybe they were on an emergency frequency. Nope. Nothing. 9.40 9.40 a.m. and 15 seconds, Nicosia called Athenai and asked if the flight had contacted them. Athenai answered, quote, not yet, end quote. So, still nothing. There's going to be a lot of back and forth between the air traffic controllers here, since there's not a back and forth with the airplane. Makes sense. Yep. At 10.12 a.m. and 5 seconds, so now we're talking almost 30 minutes later, over 30 minutes later. And they haven't said anything to nothing. anybody. Nope. Nothing. Athenai air traffic controllers called the flight to issue a descent clearance. The flight did not respond. More attempts were made on the emergency frequency and by other aircraft near the flight, but there was no response. 10.12 a.m. and 32 seconds, the Athenai ACC contacted the Athens approach controller and informed them that they had no radio contact with the flight. Between 10.13 a.m. and 4 seconds and 10.14 a.m. and 36 seconds, Athenai ACC called the flight 11 times with no response. Then after that, <laughs> actually, well, this is over a long period of time. At 10.12 a.m. and 52 seconds and 10.49 a.m. and 18 seconds, so a whole nother half hour, over half hour later, he called the emergency frequency five times for a radio check, three times for squawk ident, and one time to request the flight to call the approach frequency. So... That's counted up nine times on the emergency frequency as well. Another flight also tried to call the flight on two separate frequencies. So everybody's trying to get in touch with this airplane. 10.16 a.m., Athenai ACC informed the Athenai ACC supervisor about the radio communication failure with the flight. The supervisor then notified the approach controller, Athens Tower, and the Hellenic Air Force, or the Greek Air Force. Yeah. At 10.20 a.m. and 59 seconds, the flight passed the KEA VOR and began flying the instrument approach procedure for runway 3 left at Athens. However, it was doing so still at 34,000 feet. Hmm. So it's flying the route for the, pro- the approach procedure at 34,000 feet. Oh, well, so it's that's circling not... at this point. Yeah, that's so, not going to do anything. Yeah, so the plane then performed the missed approach procedure 
making a right turn toward the KEA VOR. At 10.37 a.m. and 39 seconds, the flight reached the VOR and entered the published holding pattern. At 10.53 a.m. and 50 seconds, so now we're talking 15 minutes later, Athena IACC declared an alert phase to Joint Rescue Coordination Center, the JRCC, they call it. At 11.23 a.m. and 51 seconds, Jeez. the plane took off at 9.07. We're talking over two hours later. During the plane's sixth holding pattern, the flight was intercepted by two F-16s from the Greek Air Force, or the Hellenic Air Force. The F-16s got in very close to the aircraft to get visual contact of the windows. The F-16s were communicating on the military radio frequency and with Athena ACC, but one of the pilots attempted to attract the attention of the flight crew using the radios, but no success. One of the F-16s remained behind the, the 737 the entire time, primed to shoot it down, in case the airplane posed a threat to people on the ground or important places on the ground. So be it that it's flying over mm, Athens. Yeah. They didn't want it to hit mm, Athens. Right. <laughs> it seems to me like they're just having a radio problem. Like they're just holding because they can't get a hold of ATC. Something well, strange is going yeah, on. Yeah, because it makes sense that they're having radio problems because they're not answering. But they should still be able to fly their normal... They should be yes. able to descend? Yeah. Yes. It's a little weird that they're still up so high. Yes. And they're just circling. And, like, not no communications are coming out of it. Well, just you wait, because this mystery gets a lot deeper all oh, of a good, sudden. Oh, good, because I'm really confused. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Well, here comes the mystery. The other F-16 circled around closely to the left and right sides of the airplane to look in the windows and examine the airplane. They did not observe any external structural damage, fire, or smoke. So the airplane was in one piece and flying okay. At 11.32 a.m., the F-16 reported that the captain's seat was empty. They also noted that the first officer seat was occupied by somebody who was slumped over. She got oh, it. Oh, no. Maybe. But wait, how are they still in a holding pattern? Is the plane just in a holding pattern then? We'll get okay, there. Okay, okay. I'm sorry. We'll get there. I'm, I'm getting too far. <laughs> lots, lots more to go. Pilot. We'll get there. Lots more going on. They also observed that two passengers on the left side of the cabin, one in white and one in red, were sitting motionless with oxygen masks on their face. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I know what happened. They could see other oxygen masks hanging from the ceiling. The passenger cabin was dark, but the light shining through the windows from the other side showed the silhouettes. At 11.34 a.m., Athena IACC declared a distress phase to the JRCC, so this is a heightened now, a big problem. 11.48 a.m. and 31 seconds, two chimes are heard in the cockpit, and 20 seconds later, a continuous chime that lasted 20 seconds occurred. A moment later, the cockpit door opened. At 11.49 a.m., the F-16 pilot observed someone take the captain's seat while the aircraft was in its 10th holding pattern. He noticed the person put on a set of headphones and then place his hands directly on the panel in front of him. At 11.49 a.m. and 50 seconds, the left engine shut down. So this is 50 seconds after the person entered the cockpit and sat down. The left engine shut down and the airplane began making a left turn to head in a northeasterly direction. The person in the cockpit did not respond to any of the F-16 pilot's attempts to get his attention, however. They noticed that the person in the cockpit seemed to lean forward occasionally. The flight began descending in a northwesterly heading. The two F-16s followed at a distance to avoid the sudden maneuvering of the 737. 
One of the F-16s once again moved up a little while later to see inside the cockpit and noted that the person sitting in the first officer's seat leaned backward as if to sit up, but then remained motionless. As the 737 reached 7,000 feet, so now we've descended very far, the person in the captain's seat finally acknowledged the F-16s and made a hand motion. The F-16 pilot tried to motion the person to follow them to an airport. The person only responded with one hand motion downward, indicating that the airplane was going down and did not follow the F-16. At 11.59 a.m. and 20 seconds, the flight changed to a southwesterly direction. The airplane continued to descend very rapidly. At 11.59 a.m. and 47 seconds, the right engine shut down while they were at 7,084 feet. The airplane descended rapidly and then collided with a hill in the vicinity of Grammatico, which is 33 kilometers northwest of the Athens airport, and this happened at noon 3.32. All 121 people on board perished in the crash. The airplane broke apart and a fire ensued that engulfed all parts of the airplane. The F-16s witnessed the whole thing happen. Though there's not much they could do, other than make sure it didn't try to shoot it down in case it went down in a populated area. It's true. But it's rare that anybody actually sees everything happen in such detail, too. That's true. That's horrible. Like, you don't want to see that, but... Yes. That's it. Okay, so here's the deal. (laughs) My first thought is hypoxia, because the masks came down. But then my... My question is, what's the deal with this other person that went into the captain's seat if they're not wearing oxygen? Well, we'll get into we'll that. We'll get into that. Okay. So, one person of note that was on board and prior to being assigned the flight wasn't supposed to be on the flight. Mm-hmm. He was one of the flight attendants, the only male flight attendant actually. Um, and he was stationed in the back of the plane. He wasn't assigned to that flight until last minute. I don't. I think he had to fill in for someone. So he was on board. His name was Prodromo. Prodromo? I'm sorry. Nice. Prodromo? I wish I had that name. <laughs> Prodromo? That'd be pretty sweet. I'll call you Prodromo from now on. Please don't. Okay. <laughs> well, then you don't want that name. I mean, it, w- it would have been sweet, but it's not my name, so don't call me that. <laughs> that was his last okay. name, for the record. Andreas Prodromo. He was 25. That's, that's cool. He Part of the reason that he was okay being on this flight was his girlfriend was another one of the flight attendants. And was on the flight. Cute. Cute. Um, until you figure out what happened. Then not so cute. It's like a love story. He <sighs> died in a fiery passion. Oh, God. Okay. That's horrible. Wow. <laughs> oh, my God. He'll come up later. So, this investigation was performed by the Greek Authority, the Air Accident Investigation and Aviation Safety Board, or the AAIASB. You think that's hey, long hey, enough? Hey, sp- <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's good. I oh, like another thing we should mention. Worst aviation disaster in Greece. Yes, this was the worst aviation disaster on Greek soil. To this day? To this day. I think so. So, both black boxes were recovered technically? The box for the CVR was recovered, but the recorder itself was launched from the plane. Is this that ejecting system you were talking about that one time? No, but... <laughs> oh, man. That's what happened. So investigators had to go look for it. Stick a pin in that, we'll circle back. The FDR was found in good condition and was able to be read out without issue. 
Now, there was a lot of pressure on investigators because there were those who thought it may have been terrorism or a hijacking, which... There's a lot of signs that it was a hijacking. There's the, one person awake. Yep. And not so, responding to the F-16s yeah. and in the captain's seat. And that one, isn't the captain? We'll get there. One of the... Literally right now. One of the first clues they found supported that for like two seconds and then it didn't. The clue was that it wasn't the captain sitting in the captain's seat. Right. It was the flight attendant, Pedromo. He Had he taken over the plane? Well, kind of not really. The CVR was found five days after the crash and was sent to the BEA in France for analysis. And the last 30 minutes were obtained. And that's when they found out that Pedromo, who had a UK commercial pilot's license, was trying to help. What the CVR had recorded, but wasn't heard by ATC, was him weakly saying, quote, Mayday, 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 Flight 522, Mayday, Mayday. The FDR went further to reveal that it wasn't the flight attendant who caused the plane to turn and descend. It was the engines running out of fuel. Yeah, I was going to say, it's because they're, they've they been circling for so long, they, they only been, have so much fuel. The airplane had enough fuel to make it to its destination and a little beyond, if it needed it. But it had a lot of fuel because it flew for, like, twice the length of its flight. It was supposed to be, like, a 90-minute flight, and they flew for three hours. Yeah. Yeah. You know what really surprised me, and I know we're going to get into this later, so I'm sorry in advance, but the fact that the passenger masks uh, came down pretty mm -hmm. early, and no flight attendant said anything to the cockpit. We'll talk about that later. I was like, why is no one telling them that there's a problem? <laughs> We'll talk about that later. So, if not a hijacking, what happened? Investigators decided to look at the maintenance logs for the aircraft. Oh, boy. Oh, that's not a good sign. <laughs> no. Oh, no. On December 16th, 2004, eight months before the accident, seven cycles after a sea check, there was a rapid decompression on the same aircraft. The pilot wrote up, quote, rapid decompression, descent to 10,000, Packs or passenger O2 deployed, end quote. Basically what happened was there wasn't a proper seal on the back door, and a flight attendant remarked that he could even fit his hand through it. Oh! No, no, no! No, no! Oh, no! Maintenance Wait. recorded that they adjusted the door, tested pressurization, replaced the oxygen generators, and returned it to service. It took off? What? The door unjammed. It oh. shifted. Oh, yeah. Just... That's horrifying. I think, yeah, I think the Air Disasters out. episode said that the hinges shifted. Yeah, it seemed mm -hmm. like the hinges shifted or something. Don't quote me on that. That's horrifying. Mm -hmm. So, that was eight months earlier. Now, we're fast-forwarding to August 13th, the day before the accident. The flight crew recorded, quote, Apt service door starboard seal around door freezes and hard bangs are heard during flight, end quote, and that the door requires full inspection. And they didn't inspect it before this flight. So the crews performed some unscheduled maintenance and ran a pressure test as well as visual inspection. The they, ground crews, I should say. They okay. did all of that that night. Normally, pressurization is done automatically using the engines in flight that pump air into the cabin to pressurize it. Well, the engineer didn't really want to run the engines on the ground, so he manually did it using the APU and air conditioning. But no leakage was found around the aft starboard door, and pressure through the cabin was fine. He then depressurized the aircraft, performed a couple of other tests, including a flight crew oxygen mask test, but all was well and the plane was cleared for service. So, here's my question. Is it a problem of the plane being, like, when they get to a certain altitude? No. No. 
Additionally, the F-16s didn't see any damage while they were flying around the aircraft, so investigators ruled out completely an explosive decompression. The answer is way simpler than you think. Seriously? Yes. That makes me upset. Also, if it was a depressurization event, which we're assuming it is, right? But at this point, it's like, yes, that's what happened. You can safely assume that. Why was there nothing to tell the pilots they needed to put their oxygen masks on? Shh. You stop getting ahead of them. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just asking questions. We'll get there too. Everyone else is probably thinking the same thing I am. Okay. That's, that's fair. Slow your roll. Let me talk. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so investigators turned to the conversation between the flight crew and airline operations and compared it alongside the FDR. They did not have an exact transcript or recording, but worked off what they had from the interviews. At about 12,000 feet, you might recall, a warning horn went off. Mm -hmm. And eight seconds later, the autopilot disengaged, but re-engaged four seconds later. Then, same thing with the autothrottle. Disengage, then re-engage. And then the radio was used to contact operations. Now, these actions were consistent with what the captain said of hearing the takeoff configuration warning horn. But what he didn't realize is the warning sounds the same for the cabin altitude warning horn, which is what was actually going on. Oh, no. So it's he... the wrong horn. Okay. No, it's the same horn. No, it's the same horn, but he didn't wrong realize. Yeah. So should they have been confused by this? Investigators considered how often you hear each of these warning horns. The takeoff configuration warning sounds whenever you try to take off with improper trim, flaps, or speed brake setting, as well as, and more importantly in this case, when the throttles are advanced during a pre-flight check to verify that the warning horn works. So... Really, they hear that a lot. Mm-hmm. That is what they are. What's the word I'm looking for? Prompted, preeminently. Used to. Con- yeah. Conditioned to. Conditioned to Conditioned. hear. Yes. Thank you. That's a great word. Good job, Brendan. Conversely, pilots are hardly ever going to hear the cabin pressurization warning at any point during their career. So it's not unreasonable to confuse the two. You know, it's. it seems not unreasonable, but... Why would you hear the, the takeoff the configuration, configuration in horn flight? in yeah, flight? Yeah, exactly. Which, okay, so he did the right thing and he called operations, but I feel like it was a very simple answer of, oh, you're confusing that. That's the altitude warning horn. Like, did they you sound catch the same. It? Because I said it. Did they, you? They said it. Did they say it? Operations asked him about the pressurization panel. But do you see how fast he glanced over that and you missed it? Yes. That's how fast they missed it. Oh. The captain was so focused, so fixated on one issue well, that he missed it. You well, never, he was he never, hold on. air conditioning. He never answered the question. No. He didn't answer. He skipped right Which past that I'll question. Which I'll get into why. Okay. So the flight crew and ground engineer were having trouble understanding one another. And the communication continued to degrade. And around 20,000 feet, the master caution horn was canceled. What the crew also didn't realize was hypoxia was setting in. Yes. That's why they were getting confused. That's why they weren't answering questions. Hypoxia, for those of you who don't know. Who, this would it, be hypoxic hypoxia, by the way. Yes. Hypoxic hypoxia. I had to learn all four types. Yep. So, hypoxic hypoxia Ooh. is a condition that occurs during lack of oxygen, such as at high altitudes. The symptoms are similar to being drunk and woozy, such as Miranda might be since putting a lot of bourbon in her uh, drink earlier. By accident. <laughs> <laughs> With symptoms increasing as oxygen supply decreases. We have two tables on our website regarding the stages of hypoxia, which I will read aloud some now while these two get to look at it. So... Between the altitudes of 0 and 10,000 feet, 
you're not hypoxic, congratulations, you can breathe. Your oxygen saturation is 95, 90 to 95%. That's normal. Mm-hmm. As you go up 5,000 feet, your um, blood oxygen starts to de- decrease down to about 80%. And as you continue rising in altitude, your blood oxygen decreases, meaning your brain kind of stops functioning. I'm kind of surprised they got all the way up to 34,000 feet. They didn't. Not the aer- consciously. The airplane did. Oh, because it was on autopilot. Yep. Hence, it flew its whole route alone. So at 22,000 feet, one of, so one of the tables that's included is time of useful consciousness, which how you figured this out, I'm not sure. They cite a study. The ones in the, my aviation books are actually a little bit shorter, especially the higher altitudes. Because I think like at 66,000 feet, it has 12 seconds here. I think mine in the book says like, Four seconds. Great. Yeah. So nice. there's there's two columns here. One is moderate activity, such as the flight crew would be experiencing, and the other column is sitting quietly, like the passengers and flight attendants. So at twenty two thousand feet, you're looking at five minutes and ten minutes respectively. Now when you're more at like their cruising altitude of thirty four thousand feet, you're at thirty and forty five seconds respectively. Mm-hmm. So this whole conversation they're having with operations, they're quote unquote drunk, losing it, don't know what's happening, like Everything's wavering, and then eventually they pass out. It degraded their ability to fly the aircraft. Now, one thing that the ground engineer asked the crew that was of note was something along the lines of, what is your pressurization set to? Is it set to auto? Well, I don't know. Was it? So you remember back when I said that the ground engineer ran the pressurization test manually? And he didn't reset it. What he had done was change the dial on the pressurization panel from auto, which automatically pressurizes the cabin during climb, to man or manual so that he could pressurize with the APU and air conditioning. So investigators went digging in the wreckage for the panel, and guess what they found? It was still on manual. Oh, no. The ground engineer forgot to switch it back to auto. And it isn't on their checklist to make sure it's on auto? Do you know the answer to that question? Sort of. Okay. <laughs> By the way, because I told my dad earlier what we were covering today, and he goes, mm-hmm. oh yeah, I'll send you a picture of that switch right away, <laughs> as soon as he can. Now, you might ask if there is a way that the crew could have caught this before takeoff. That's exactly what I just <laughs> asked. Yes. And the answer is yes. The there... checklist. That's what I was going to say, yeah. There is a green light that indicates that the pressurization mode selector is in manual mode, but it's Almost never on or looked at since it's rare for there to be a pressurization problem. Because it's almost never switched off of auto. Yep. If you know this story from the Air Disasters episode, you might stop me and say, but the episode said they might not have seen it because of the bright morning light. Well, investigators checked that and they were able to see it just fine. So that's my issue with the Air Disasters episode. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. (laughs) As we've said before, it's not super accurate. Whatever. It's It's made for TV. It's made for TV. Investigators attribute this miss as just going through the motions of checklists and how they always see that light off and just kind of glance over amidst the literally hundreds of steps in their pre-flight procedure before start checklist and after takeoff checklist. Which, okay, I understand that, but it's one of those things where you can't go in autopilot all the time, you know, because then something like this happens. And then if you don't catch the fact that it's the altitude, the pressurization warning, and there's no communication between the cabin and the cockpit. You're going to miss all the warning signs, which they did. And then they become hypoxic. And at that point, like, I'm surprised that the flight attendant was even able to get to the forward. Now that you bring that up. 
Like, where was the captain, by the way, if he wasn't in his seat? So you recall that the last thing the captain was told was that the circuit breakers were behind his seat. Did he turn around and try to get to he them? He got out of his get seat. Get up, pass out. Oh, gosh. And fell. Yeah. So, why was Prodromo awake? What was happening in the cabin? It is procedure for flight attendants, and once the oxygen masks drop, to stay in your seat and wait for descent. That didn't happen. No. They don't have procedure for if that doesn't happen. Oh, well. Which we'll talk about more later, too. I'm going to talk about what he did in particular. So he tried calling the flight deck. Didn't get anything. They were, oh, they were well, hy- they were hypoxic. hypoxic. Yeah. Yeah. Because, as I mentioned earlier on that table, when you're doing moderate activity, you run out of oxygen sooner. They were probably already passed out at this point. Mm-hmm. Well, if you don't do it right away, or you don't, I mean, if they don't catch it right away, and yep. there's no communication that, hey, the oxygen mask just deployed back here, just so you guys know, when it happens, then yeah, you're, if you don't, if a couple, you know, 10 minutes goes by, at that point, you're screwed. So... At this point, it is assumed that what Prodromo did was get up, and then when oxygen mass drop, more drop in each row than is needed for that row. Right. So he did what they call monkey swinging and went up the aisle, taking oxygen little bits at a time while everyone else was passing out, got to the front, and at the front, they have portable oxygen tanks. Yeah. There are four of them. Three were used. All of them had his DNA on them. So he lasted each, for a long time. Each yeah. lasts about an hour. So he lasted the whole flight. Yeah. And his girlfriend was sitting up front, passed out. And what I didn't mention earlier was that the coroner found that everyone was alive at the time of impact, just in irreversible comas. Well, because there's only so much oxygen in those tanks. Mm-hmm. There's, like, enough for them to get down to a, a safe altitude to so, breathe. And that's also kind of an iffy... It's hard to say that there's oxygen in the tanks because what everyone has above their seats is an oxygen generator. It creates oxygen from the atmosphere, but it only has enough chemical in, in it to do it for, depending on who you ask, depending on the plane, tw- 10, 12, 15 minutes. Yeah, it's enough for them to make a descent so everyone can breathe. Pretty much but it. That didn't happen. So it's like a scrubber. No one has oxygen. Everyone's in a coma except for Andreas Prodromo. Well, because he decided, I don't know, like what caused him to to go to the front and use the. And they don't know how many times he entered the cockpit. They have no way of knowing that. So they don't know if he tried to go in there, do anything. What they presume is because in the CVR and. When you heard that, when they heard that chime on the mm-hmm. CBR, they presume that was the cockpit door warning. They think that was his attempt to get in. Mm. They assume that was the cockpit, the cockpit door breach warning. What Which, year was this? 2005. 2005. Yeah, how the hell did he get in? There's a code, apparently. Exactly. We they don't know. They heard the code on the CVR. Huh. So one thing that they assume that he did try to do, there was DNA found on the first officer's flight crew mask so, so he's trying to get he him tried to, to revo- the... revive the first officer which right. may or may not have worked for a split second yeah because, because he, he sat, sat up, back yeah which was a weird thing they never mentioned in the episode either the nope air well and it, they were down at like what seven thousand feet at that point and yeah. that's where breathable oxygen is so yeah so. it could have been that too yeah. yeah but getting him to come back from a coma after being out for three hours is pretty much impossible yeah and they said it varies person to person um, it does. Another factor of what may have kept Prodromo alive, um, he were, he was in the 
Cypress Special Forces as a scuba diver. Oh, so he was used to having a lack of oxygen. His body was used yep. to it. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of things in his favor, but having him having his commercial pilot's license really couldn't have helped him at all. They were so low on fuel, there's no way that he could have done anything by the time he actually got to the captain's seat. So he was just indicating, we're going down, and that's what's happening. Also, it's kind of horrible that he was like alive and alert when mm-hmm. they crashed. Like, And he couldn't do anything about it, because at that point it was too late. Well, and he was slumping over too. He didn't have oxygen anymore. Right. That's probably the, the good thing is he probably wasn't fully aware of the train quickly approaching. Yeah. Nobody really was in that airplane. Yeah. Well, and fun fact for scuba divers, when you scuba a lot, your body gets used to pressure and the lack of oxygen. So your body starts creating uh, special red blood cells that can mm-hmm. give you more oxygen to last longer. Fun fact. So that might also have helped him. I mean, depending on when he even decided to get up and go to the front. Like, it's surprising to me that the mask dropped and, I don't know, maybe 20, 30 minutes went by and no one went, um, why are we, why are we still at this altitude? Why are we climbing? Right. At least, I mean, those, I mean, like, flight attendants, not people who are, you know. And it's really, it's hard to say that part of the flight wasn't recorded. Only the last 30 minutes were... Because CVRs, that's what they were yep. back then. Yeah, They have no way of knowing the extent of what anyone on board did. Well, the pilots were confused, and because they were confused and didn't put on their oxygen masks. Because they didn't know that that was a problem. Right, so at that point, once they probably figured it out, it was probably too late. And now pilots get trained on to begin recognizing signs of hypoxia. Yes, we'll get to that. Okay, there's my soapbox. Okay. And then we shall take a break. And we will do the second half. Ta-da! Break! Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you need another podcast to listen to? We found a cool true crime podcast for you to check out. The Upper Left Corner PNW True Crime Podcast has a new case every week from the Pacific Northwest. The Pacific Northwest is filled with stunning scenery, as Nick and I know from visiting Al, but it's also known for something more sinister. This beautiful area seems to be a breeding ground for serial killers and other criminals who perform heinous acts. In addition to covering the case, Emily profiles the Pacific Northwest town where each case takes place and reviews a local wine from that area. You don't have to be from the Pacific Northwest to enjoy these true crime cases. In particular, you guys might enjoy Episode 7, a deep dive on the D.B. Cooper case, as well as Episode 8, the lesser-known case of D.B. Tuber. You can listen to the Upper Left Corner PNW True Crime Podcast on your favorite podcast app now. Again, check out the Upper Left Corner PNW, that's Papa November Whiskey True Crime Podcast on your favorite podcast app today. Welcome back. So what are we covering now? <laughs> I'm glad you asked, and actually I'm glad you brought up the checklist thing earlier. Checklists. There's like an entire well, reason why they have those, by the way. Here's we the don't key. have it for fun. Here's the key <laughs> thing. We'll talk about it as we get into this, but it wasn't in the checklists. What? You're telling me nowhere no. on the checklist there's pressurization. Nope. 
Well, that's a problem. We'll talk about it. <laughs> we'll talk about it. No, it wasn't. Was that a part of any flow? No, it was not. Okay. There's a light. That's all they get. You can just you can just take off without pressurizing the airplane. Apparently, they could. Cool. Well, that's that ex- that's what happened. What happened? <laughs> Apparently, that's what happened. Okay. So we're gonna do findings, and I am sorry. <laughs> There's a lot of them. There's a lot of them. I narrowed it down to the ones that I want, and it's still a lot. I'm reading 35 of them. Oh Jesus Christ! <laughs> that's I'm it. Sorry. That's all. How many were there originally? I don't know. Probably somewhere in the range of 50 or 60. I think we should go into each one with grave S- detail. Super in-depth. Like... I think we should deliberately ignore Brenton <laughs> in this instance. You know, all the good ideas were frowned upon at one time. So they start, because they broke these into sections. They start with the flight crew. They found that although atherosclerosis was found, minor atherosclerosis in the captain and extensive in the first officer. Sorry, what? Uh, atherosclerosis. Good. Atherosclerosis. I, here, let me read the better definition, but it's basically clogging of the arteries. Yeah. So in other words, they were just really unhealthy. unhealthy. <laughs> yeah. Prone to heart attack. Oh, At- so another form of hypoxia could have been occurring. Yes. Oh. Stagnant hypoxia. Which is bad in the flight crew since they're supposed to last longer and try to make the airplane go down (laughs) atherosclerosis refers to the buildup of fats cholesterol and other substances in and on your artery walls i.e plaque which can restrict blood flow the plaque can burst triggering a blood clot although atherosclerosis is often considered a heart problem it can affect arteries anywhere in your body nice sounds good like a good way to go (laughs) that's how most americans go yes (laughs) not most but many so Although they found this in both flight crew, the Hellenic Air Force Aviation Medical Center estimated the brain hypoxia was the dominant determinant cause of incapacitation. Yeah, they didn't have a heart attack. No. No. In the air. Passed out. They just didn't have enough oxygen. Right. They found that during the pre-flight procedure, the before start and after takeoff checklist completion, the flight crew did not recognize and correct the incorrect position of the pressurization mode selector, man position instead of auto. We'll talk about this more later. They found that the green light indication of the pressurization mode selector was in man position should have been perceived by the flight crew during pre-flight takeoff and climb. Yeah. So it just should have been noticed is more what they're saying. So if they would have noticed it when the alarm went off and pressurized the airplane at that point, would they have been okay? Theoretically, yes. Yes. Where is the switch on the panel? It is overhead. Overhead. Is it by important other switches? Um, it's on the far right side, I believe. I don't know what's on the switchboard for the 737-300. They found that the initial actions by the flight crew to disconnect the autopilot to retard and then again advance the throttles indicated that it interpreted the warning horn as a takeoff configuration warning. Because it's the same horn. Yes. Which is slightly a problem, but also, like, you wouldn't hear the takeoff configuration in In the the air. air. Like what Brendan said earlier, like... If it's two possibilities, and you know the one possibility isn't possible, but the reason... but the other's like a once in a career, not even then. But and you should be trained that these are the same horns. If you hear it when you're not on the ground, we'll talk about. But but it's more to the point is that they didn't get trained on that. Right? And they didn't know. You know. If if they would have pulled those circuit breakers, that would have probably. They would have realized it's okay. It's actually not. But they never got that far because then right. the, the alarm would have gone off if it was that. 
It, it just took too much time to do that, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. yeah. And if the engineer had actually been a little more forceful. Oh, I forgot to mention something. I had written it down and then deleted it and said I was going to say it another time. The master caution warning. Oh, right, right, right. Yes, yes, yes. Which was a separate warning, by Which, the way. Which, yes, but it, you said it was canceled. So it sounded for 53 seconds. Which is a long time. That's a sign that they didn't know. Yeah. So th- and they were confused. That is the point at which the captain said something's wrong with our cooling system. He was not incorrect with that statement. However, the master caution was actually on for two reasons. And they only recognized one of them. They had no way of knowing the other one was there. The second reason was that the masks dropped in the cabin. Oh, see, so they did have a way to know that that happened. They just didn't realize that that was because the master caution was going off for an entirely different reason. Yes. Toward the end of all this, we'll talk about how this changed and why none of this is really even important anymore. Okay, that's good. (laughs) Yeah. All of this is the problem with reusing horns and having multiple re- i mean master caution mm-hmm. can happen for multiple anything, reasons anything pretty much yeah like if if something's going really really wrong the master caution will come on but yes. don't we now have computers that say hey this is why the master caution's on that's what i was gonna talk about yes <laughs> we'll talk but, about that later uh, I, it, it's now there... a moot point but yeah yes okay they found the incorrect imp- interpretation of the reason for the warning horn indicated that the flight crew was not aware of the inadequate pressurization of the aircraft. So just like we talked about, the horn didn't tell them anything because they didn't right. know. <laughs> they knew something was wrong, but they didn't know the reason what, why it came on. Right. They found that there were numerous remarks in the last five years by training and check pilots on file for the first officer referring to checklist discipline and procedural difficulties. So he, he was had an having, issue with checklists. having a hard time with checklists. That doesn't necessarily mean that he messed any of them up, though. They don't yeah. know. But he he well, had a hard time in the past. They don't, I mean, because it only records the last 30 minutes of the flight. Right, of and course he was not know. awake for any of that. Uh, but it, well, could, it could have been a possibility, if he was the one running the checklists, that he just glanced over mm-hmm. that, which is why they put that in there. Mm-hmm. They found that communications between the flight crew and the company operations center dispatcher were not recorded, nor was there a regulatory requirement to record such communications. Now, this isn't entirely strange to me, but it is something that, to me, it it seems like it would have definitely been helpful. Because all they had was the testimony of the dispatchers and the engineer who told them what the crew said to them and... Vice versa. Right, right, right. And that's all they had. So if they they don't have anything to back that up, they can't prove what was said to the... So even that thing where I said the engineer said, and like asked them about the pressurization panel, he probably yeah. did. And he probably said that. And he said that the response to that was the captain asked where the circuit breakers were for the... The cooling system. Cooling system. But that can't be proven because there's no recording from the operations center. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, though, that the captain just, if that was the case, right, because they can't, Mm -hmm. as you just said, they can't, like, back that up. But if he just went straight to the cooling system, why would the cooling system cause the alarm to go off? So, air disasters, uh, in the episode, they attribute that to the onset of hypoxia. Mm. So he yeah. just thought that that would be the cause because he was confused. He was, he was fix- confused. He was fixated. He was fixated on it at that point, and his brain wasn't working 
properly. So he kept focusing on that issue until he passed out. Yeah. Okay. Basically. They found that... Okay, so... At an aircraft altitude of seventeen to 18,000 feet, the master caution was activated and was not canceled for 53 seconds. And the reason the activation may be either the inadequate cooling equipment or the deployment of the oxygen mask. Now, let's be honest. It's probably the deployment of the oxygen mask. Yeah. Because that's about when that happened. I mean, if the cooling system isn't working okay, your, your passengers are going to be a little uncomfortable. Yes. But it's not the end of the world. So, they don't really talk about this either, but... I'm going to talk about it because it comes up here. So they say that the, that caution came on between 17 and 18,000 feet and that the mass drop probably dropped about then. Mm-hmm. For those that know the commercial aviation world, they know that the set pressure, which was actually they proved the set pressure on the panel, had they been in auto mode, was 10,000 feet. Mm-hmm. So uh, their 10,000 foot pressure altitude for the cabin was normally where they would get the alarm. Well, they didn't get it until 12,000 feet. And, furthermore, the oxygen mass didn't drop until seventeen to 18,000 feet. So why was there such a delay? Well, in manual mode, it's not that the cabin doesn't get any pressure at all, oh. but it gets very little, and it's controlled manually. Well, yeah, and if you get to a point where the air is just too thin, it's just... So what they found was that there was some air coming into the cabin. There was also a fair amount leaving the cabin at the rear. And this meant that the cabin had a small amount of pressure, but not much. So actually, when they were flying at 34,000 feet, uh, let me see if I can find it here. They found that the actual cabin altitude was more like 24,000 feet. So not horrible. Um, going back to my Still, table, like hypoxic, but uh, I mean twenty-four-ish thousand feet. You have two minutes of useful consciousness at moderate activity, and three minutes if you're sitting quietly, which so, still isn't very much. No, it's not much. It's pretty much <laughs> useless. It makes sense though why the flight attendant could get from the back to the front though yeah. to get to the cylinders at the front of the plane yes they found that the flight crew possibly identified the reason for the master caution to be only the inadequate cooling of the equipment that was indicated on the overhead panel and did not identify the second reason for its activation the passenger oxygen mass deployment right they found that the workload in the cockpit during the climb was already high and then was exacerbated by the loud warning horn and the flight crew did not that the flight crew did not cancel right away so this was a problem, obviously. And right. on top of that, they're losing their minds, literally. Yeah. Slowly but truly. So that didn't help. They found that before hypoxia began to affect the flight crew's performance, inadequate CRM contributed to the failure to diagnose the pressurization problem. So yeah. they actually are blaming the crew here versus even the ground people for not setting because okay we'll we'll talk about that in a minute but they didn't have anything anywhere that said they had to set that to auto after they were done doing the pressure check on the airplane for the ground crew to be fair you i feel like that's just a thing you should do but Mm -hmm. but there's nothing to remind them otherwise right so i mean forgetting it i get it but the crew should have been able to ultimately it is the crew's responsibility yes to make sure the airplane's in a safe flyable condition right when they leave so, they're saying that the crew resource management was a big problem in this. Well, because, and it, it was, 
you can actually, they don't, while they don't have the recordings, they can kind of prove that based on the way they were talking to operations, the fact that it took over from first officer to the captain who was trying to coordinate, yeah. the captain's asking questions out of nowhere, well, I was getting gonna... up out of his seat, things like that, and then not canceling these warnings. Like, yes, these are signs of hypoxia, but also he's just doing things that, that he shouldn't be doing. He shouldn't be doing. Like, he's the one flying the aircraft. The first officer should be the one talking to operations, mm-hmm. which is why I asked who was flying the airplane. Right. Well, they could have they could have exchanged controls. Right, which makes sense. But if they didn't, then why was he still contacting? You know, I mean, we don't know because we don't have that part of the CVR, right? Like it was recorded over. That that's fairly common for the the captain if there's a problem to, to give take, the controls to, to take the, over. Yeah. The, yeah. To, to give the controls, give the to, controls the first, to the first officer and, and he's take over. Try to figure out the right. problem. Yeah. But if 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 what you were saying to me earlier is correct, and the first officer was talking to ATC, and the pilot or the captain was talking to uh, ground to mm-hmm. the to the engineer, it's like why why switch duties? Why yeah. switch duties? Yeah. You know? Yeah, basically. So that was a sign that there was CRM breakdown, and then they were focused, fixated on a certain issue rather than running through checklists or trying to determine anything at all there was nothing and they weren't listening to the guy at operations either so there's a lot of signs that they just they were fixed on fixated on these problems and they kind of in the air disasters episode they kind of wanted to like portray that right away yeah because they did something that they didn't they never proved actually happened but like the first officer was running through the checklist before they left the gate and they portray the captain as going are you done yet with the checklists and being, like, what? super rude, yeah, but being they don't rude. have any proof that, of that. that. That probably never happened. But it's more kind of setting that precedent of, like, they weren't working together correctly. Right. So now we'll move on to the cabin crew. They found that after the deployment of the oxygen masks in the cabin, the cabin crew members would have expected initiation of a descent, or at least leveling off of the aircraft. Right. That didn't happen. They continued to climb. Right. So, obviously, that's a really key thing. Which comes up in the recommendations. It's also for a sure. huge red flag. A huge... Like, it, it surprises me. And again, we don't know if this happened or not because we don't have the that info. Mm-hmm. But it it would surprise me that after a couple minutes of the, of the masks being down, mm-hmm. that if they're still ascending, that no one called the cockpit. Uh, yes, it's true. And well, didn't they call the cockpit? They, there's well, no proof of there's it. There's no proof. They likely tried, but by then they were probably passed out. So there is this coming, like I said, this will come up in the recommendations, but this obviously changed because they found that this wasn't just a Helios problem. It was an everywhere problem. This was pretty much an everywhere problem. It was procedure for them to just sit in their seats, put on the oxygen mask, take care of the passengers and wait for a descent. Well, they're because they're assuming that the pilots already know what's going on. Pretty much, but they didn't. So that's where the confusion came in. Are there procedures for flight attendants taking over the aircraft and or asking if anyone on board the pilot? No. No. But that said, well, there there are some trainings for flight attendants to program an airplane to basically land. <laughs> um, well, well and that's worst something. Case, worst case scenario, they can also talk to air traffic control and air traffic controller can walk them through it. So, right. There's always a way. Okay. They found that it could not be determined that at what actions were taken by the cabin crew members after deployment of the oxygen mask in the cabin, nor whether any, any of the cabin crew members attempted to contact the flight crew or enter the flight deck after passenger oxygen mask deployed. So, that said, obviously, the one flight attendant did make it to the cockpit three hours later. Right. 
We know that much. We found that shortly before flameout of the left engine, a member of the cabin crew was observed by an F-16 pilot to enter the flight deck to sit in the captain's seat and to attempt to gain control of the aircraft. But he didn't. He had a commercial pilot's license, but one, he was hypoxic. Right. right. Um, two, he wasn't qualified on a 737, nor had he ever flown anything even close to that. So they found that his knowledge, based on his logbook, wouldn't have been anywhere near enough to know how to operate a 737. He did what he could. Yeah, but he did try to get, like, the first officer's masks on. Yes. And, I mean, that I mean that in general is a good thing. Because yes. you're trying to get a person who could potentially save the aircraft right. back to a point where he can save the aircraft. So, part of why I left it in the story, but they said that he leaned forward several times. He was noted by the F-16 pilots. Right. What I'm thinking was occurring there was that he was leaning on the stick trying to get it to Go move. Down. Yeah. And it wasn't because it was an autopilot, but oh. he didn't know how to disconnect it. And in a hypoxic state, he never would well, have figured it out. If if you put a lot of, I mean, I don't know about 737s. I'm not a pilot, friends. You guys know this. But if you put enough pressure on the yoke, would it disconnect the autopilot? Not necessarily. It depends on the airplane. It should. In this one, it yes, it probably should. Which, at this point, the engines were Flaming disengaged, yeah. so it didn't matter. It didn't matter. They probably lost hydraulic pressure, and he didn't. He couldn't operate the airplane anyways. Yeah, well, well that's that a point, good point. Hydraulic pressure is gone. Yeah. So, I mean, after the engine flame out, there was nothing you can do. The but, airplane's pretty much a brick. I mean, if he's going to try to, you know, get control of the airplane. But would the hydraulic pressure be gone? Probably. The APU wasn't on. So yeah, there's but, nothing to run the pump. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. I forgot about the APU. Yeah. There's nothing really to run the pump. I mean, they might have had electrical briefly, but if it was running on generator power, they were done for. It was a brick. I mean, at least it didn't crash in Athens. Yes, it hit nothing, basically. It hit an open field. They found that the above cabin crew member held a commercial pilot's license, so yeah, he yeah. was a commercial pilot. In the UK, which I thought was it's, interesting. Uh, it's actually kind of common. Mostly in... That part of the world, that's where you can go to a flight school where they actually have airplanes because they have a budget for them. Oh. Um, and it's not wildly expensive to learn how to fly. Yeah. You don't like sound better. <laughs> so now we move on to the aircraft. They found that the aircraft had been supplied with the required amount of fuel. Thanks. Fuel was not a factor in this accident. Thanks. No kidding. Yeah. It flew twice the length I, of the flight. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm surprised it lasted that long. Since they were only going to Athens. Yeah, they they actually found that there was too much fuel on the airplane. Separate issue. That's but, what, I mean, nothing wrong with too much fuel. No, other than As weight. long as CG is okay. But yeah. CG was good on the airplane, so yeah. they were fine. They found that there were no deferred maintenance de defects that had been recorded on the airplane, so nothing had been deferred. They had taken care of all the maintenance issues, which is key, because they can't. they still can't prove... If the door had a problem right. on the flight. The airplane had some pressure. It really ultimately wasn't the main problem anyways. It was more that they didn't set the pressurization panel. Yeah. <laughs> but they couldn't prove if the the rear door had anything to do You know, because everything was on um, fire. I was actually really surprised that they were able to find the pressurization mode selection panel or whatever. Yeah, they actually just found it in the wreckage and they found it set in manual mode. They found the switch. It's legit. Um, and yeah, that back door on the previous flights, they literally found ice on the inside, around the inside handles of it. 
when it would arrive, like when it would land and get there, the, the maintenance crew noted ice on the handles. That's how much, that's like how much cold air was flowing into the door. They found that data retrieved from the non-volatile memory, NVM, of the number two cabin pressurization control for at least the last 42 flights revealed a pressurization leak or insufficient inflow of air for reasons that could not be determined. The rear door. <laughs> yep. Undetermined, though. Undetermined. They can't prove it. Pretty much. Because they didn't have the, the door. part. <laughs> yeah. But we can assume pretty, pretty well that that was the issue. They found that there were nine write-ups related to the equipment cooling system in the aircraft technical log from 9th of June to 13th of August, 2005. So there probably was a cooling problem. This was the fact that they probably thought this was the problem because this is, first of all, this is the only 737-300 the company owned at the time. So that means that these pilots flew that airplane. A lot. <laughs> so they had probably had that problem before, since it had happened nine times in the previous two months. So they were already primed to consider that a problem. Yes. So needless and to say, that was the fixation. And that, I would say, I'm surprised they didn't bring it up, but really that to me was like, that is probably why they never assumed any other problem over anything else, is the fact they knew that happened to that airplane. That's fair. They found that the maintenance actions performed in the early morning hours of the day of the accident comprised a visual inspection of the rear right door, no defects were found. Any pressurization tests, no leakage was found. Can you imagine being that ground engineer, though? Like, no, mm. it wasn't your fault, but also... But, yeah, that's that's rough. Does just doing it with the APU provide the same amount of pressure as it, as it would with the engines? It was it's... sufficient to do the test. Yes, I would assume it's sufficient to do the test, but I would think it would take a lot longer. Well, understandable. And I'm not sure it would provide enough pressure once the airplane's airborne. Actually, I I glanced over it, but I remember because there were two people on board, two ground engineers, and one of them said that they were pressurizing the cabin too fast because his ears hurt. Hmm. And hmm. that it was at a faster rate than normal pressurization because normally you increase in feet per minute. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head. And then he did the same thing going back down where he was depressurizing the cabin too quickly and it hurt. So they had to take time to do it. Just open a door. Yeah. Oh, nothing could no, go wrong. No, thanks. Nothing like being sucked out of the airplane on the ground. <laughs> yeah. Nothing like the explosion that happens. I've actually heard horror stories of uh, airplane tests where the composite on a certain airplane, I won't name it. The company's gone. They don't make the airplanes. The airplanes don't fly anymore. Um, we'll talk about it later. But the they were doing a pressure test in the airplane and the the composite was uh, cured incorrectly. <laughs> and one of the door frames gave out. And Ow. <laughs> I know somebody that was working at the company at the time said uh, some people nearly went deaf, like ears were bleeding. And uh, one person that he knew was thrown 20 feet against the wall. Ow. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. It's geez. explosive. It is explosive. Ouch. So even when they're doing a pressure test, like you don't think that hard about it, but it's, that's some serious pressure in that tube. They found that the record of the maintenance actions in the aircraft technical log was incomplete. So they weren't doing the work correctly. They or they weren't, weren't recording logging it. it correctly. Yeah. Which as we have discussed before, it's a big no-no in big no -no. aviation. Big, big no-no. It's illegal. 
hand in hand with that, they found that after the pressurization test, the pressurization mode selector was not selected to auto, although not a formal omission, it would have been prudent to position the pressurization mode selector back to auto. So they don't specifically really call out the maintenance people there, but they Because they can't, they can't yeah, if they it's can't not in the say something that puts them at fault. Because as much as all aviation authorities say this is not to place blame. There's no legal anything tied to this. Oftentimes it is used as a basis for legal pursuits post-accident. So I think in this instance they were specifically saying that the ground engineer was not negligent. Right. And not giving any basis for any legal pursuit after the fact. Yeah. So now onto the manufacturer, Boeing. They found that the description in the Boeing aircraft manufacturer manual for the procedure for the pressurization check under the heading, quote, put the airplane back to its initial condition, end quote, was vague. It did not specify an action item that the pressurization mode selector to be returned to auto position after the pressurization check. So it just said it should be set back to however it was prior, which it was auto prior, but... There's nothing that specifically says it should be in auto mode. Right. And that's one of the things they wanted to change, which comes up later. They found the manufacturer's pre-flight procedure and checklist before start and after takeoff for checking and verifying the position of controls on the pressurization panel were not consistent with good human factor principles and were insufficient to guard against omission by flight crews. So, basically, the way, since it was not on there, <laughs> basically, that caused a problem. They found that the manufacturer's procedure should have should have contained enough redundancy to ensure that the pressurization system was properly configured for flight. Because the position of the pressurization mode selector was critical for pressurization, the specific action should have been explicitly listed in the checklist referring to the pressurization system before start and after takeoff. <clears throat> yes. Checklist. Checklists. Checklist! Checklist! <laughs> <laughs> you say I'm loud. So I, I I wanted to combine the following two. They found that the use of the same oral warning to signify two different situations, takeoff configuration and cabin altitude, is was, terrible. Yes, was not consistent with good human factors principles. But they said also they found over the past several years, numerous incidents had been reported involving confusion between the takeoff configuration warning and the cabin altitude warning in the Boeing 737, and NASA's ASRS office had alerted the manufacturer in the aviation industry. NASA was involved in this problem. Well, it's because NASA is the incident reporting yes. agency. Yes, they are. So, big deal, because this went up the chain, obviously, and this was before the accident, so it was noted that this was a problem. Before we move on, can mm -hmm. you demonstrate what the horn sounded like? I believe it was a... Excellent. Thank you. Yeah. I'm going to see if I can freaking find it. You're about to take off wrong. Yeah. Are you Why can't they do that? I don't know. Watch yourself before you break yourself. <laughs> hey, you're not going to take off that way. Hey. 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 Put the damn flaps down. You're not going to take off like that. <laughs> Ain't going to get no lift. <laughs> You're going to get a lot of speed, but you're not going to go up nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> what? Oh, okay. Yeah. Can you do that now? Yeah, that's right. Me, 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 me. 
I also don't know what kind of plane that's on. That's everyone seven, in, that sounds like a 737. Everyone actually. in the comments is like, what plane is that? Pretty sure that sounds like a 737. Someone says 757, 767. Yeah, actually, that's true. Yeah. Oh, I think on the 737 no, it would have been. Someone freaking has it for the Helios flight. Of course they do. Yeah, see, that's what I thought. Oh, yeah, you were the, right, you were right. Yeah, it was the eh, 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 eh. Yeah, that's annoying. Which is why you'd want to figure out why it's going off. Yeah. They found that numerous incidents had been reported worldwide involving cabin pressurization problems on the Boeing 737. A number of remedial actions had been taken by the manufacturer since 2000, but the measures taken had been inadequate and ineffective in preventing further similar incidents and accidents. Hence, Helios happened. Yeah. So, they're kind of blaming Boeing's oversight on the issue and not having taken enough action to fix the pressurization problem, so... Like this backdoor problem, it sounds like it wasn't the first time or the first airplane to have done that. Yeah. Not a good thing. One for the air traffic controllers. There were five, actually, but I'm only reading one. They found that the above-mentioned actions by Nikosian and Athenai ACCs did not contribute to the formation of events <laughs> of the accident. Can you so, Are you okay? No, no, no. So, are you hypoxic? No. <laughs> so, so, let me clarify. Please do. Wait, just say it all again. What they're saying here, the above-mentioned actions by Nikosian and Athenai, which what they're saying in the previous four findings about the ATC, which all attribute them to not doing anything sooner. <laughs> did not contribute to the formation of events. Did not contribute events. to the formation of events. So they wouldn't have done anything for the airplane. Which I get. But this was an enormous problem, if you ask me, and they don't spend enough time on it. There's a little bit in the recommendations, but... They waited to make this an emergency until the airplane was in a holding pattern past Athens. It had flown for three hours. Holy crap. I mean, they didn't bring in the F-16s until two and a half hours into the flight. Yeah. The plane was only supposed to fly for 90 minutes. It flew for a whole extra hour. Well, and, and no one was talked, responding. Yeah. They hadn't talked to the airplane for two and a half hours. Yeah, the... the, the the point that would have gotten me was when they didn't start descending. Right. Because yes, when when you're flying and you lose your comms, your radios, mm -hmm. you follow a certain procedure. You still fly the same route you just did. Right. Yeah. You just, you just, you know, whatever. But as soon as they realize no one, they're not going anywhere. Right. Right. That would have been a problem. Yeah, because I mean. You can't really assume that they're, everyone's passed out in the plane. Right. No, you can't, but when you're not hearing them on any frequency and you've been asking forever, something's got to be done. Right. I mean, waiting until the airplane is in a holding pattern, not so great. Right. So, to, to juxtapose this situation, there was a Learjet that had a famous golfer on it mm -hmm. that took off from, I think, Orlando or Fort Lauderdale, somewhere in Florida. It was in Florida. Mm -hmm. And lost radio contact and f-16s were like immediately scrambled yeah well as soon as it's going to fly through airspace without talking to anybody they usually scramble somebody because they don't well, want you flying over busy cities well, and the ligger jet was closer to the ground than the 37 was well, was this one that people are, like froze and yes yeah yeah because yeah. if you don't if you lose radio contact and you don't squawk the 7600 that mm -hmm. you're supposed to in america mm -hmm. that's when it becomes a problem yeah yeah. Exactly. But my point is is that air traffic control in that instance acted 
so much faster. Yes. Right. And in this case, they had so many indications that something was wrong long before they made this an issue. And that is what surprises me. And it bothers me. It's a little bit of a problem that they didn't decide to do something when they changed airspace, at least. Yeah. And didn't and didn't talk to anyone. So I could understand, like, if you lose comms and whatever, you can't, and you can't, like, talk to anyone. Like, your comms are, you know. Right. They can't hear you. But you can hear them. It's kind of weird that they changed, they transferred airspace and no one did anything about that. Like, they didn't think, um, this is a little weird that you yeah. went into airspace New airspace, new controlled airspace, and you didn't talk to anyone. Yes. It is weird. Now for just findings about the flight. Okay. <laughs> just one. Just one, actually. They found that the cabin crew member in the cockpit attempted to transmit a Mayday message, mm. which was recorded on the CVR. However, the Mayday calls were not transmitted over the VHF radio because the microphone key, as shown by the FDR, was not pressed. Which also, he wouldn't have known. Because right. he well, isn't a 37 pilot. he was in hypoxic. Hypoxic, well, because, yeah. I mean... Every pilot knows that the, there's a push to talk on the yoke. So right. he, he would have been able to figure that out, but I think the hypoxia would Yeah, the hypoxia was probably the biggest determining factor of why he couldn't talk to anybody. And this next bit is from the air disasters episode. Can't confirm in the report because finding it would be fun. The radio allegedly also wasn't set so that anyone in the area could have heard him anyway. Well, yeah. The last person they talked to was... Uh, the originating Lar- airport. Larnaca, yeah. yeah. So they weren't on the right frequency. frequency. Yeah, they were talking to Larnaca last. They never even switched to Narcosia. But the they tried a whole bunch of different frequencies. So yeah, they should have been able to... Eventually, but they, they never mentioned the fact that any of them tried Larnaca. So nobody ever tried the originating airport. How far does that radio go? What is the the range well, on that? It's not even necessarily that they would have had to reach to that airport. It's more just that somebody on that frequency nearby. Because well, if the F-16s tried. had tried that frequency, which I'm, hopefully they did. Hopefully they did, but they never proved it. It's never written anywhere, so I don't know if they did. Well, they which, probably, probably went through every option they could. Yeah. Ultimately, it would have been all from... It would have been a moot point anyways, because they wouldn't have talked to anybody. So Nobody was listening. I'm not sure how far commercial radios can transmit. It's pretty far. I mean, they're very high range, usually. I know on the, ones, frequency. On, the ones on the 172 are usually about 40 miles. Yeah. As the bird flies between Larnaca and Athens is 590 miles. Yeah, I wouldn't reach that far, probably. <laughs> that would be a stretch. Okay. Now for operator findings. They found that the after takeoff checklist section referring to the pressurization system in the operator's QRH, or Quick Reference Handbook, had not been updated according to the latest Boeing revision. So, oh, so they their, didn't have an updated checklist. Their anyway. checklists weren't up to date. They found that the manuals, procedures, and training of the operator, and to a large extent of the international aviation industry, did not address the actions required of cabin crew members when the passenger oxygen masks have deployed in the cabin and during climb to cruise. The aircraft has not started descending or at least leveled off, and no relevant announcement has been made from the flight decks. What they're really saying there is that the flight crews nowhere in the industry have been trained to do anything about the situation when the airplane is still climbing. Which, to me, is kind of surprising. This is 2005. 
right? And, I mean, depressurization events are very few and far between. They don't happen very often. No, they don't. But there should be... They did happen before 2005. So it's kind of surprising to me that there wasn't updated stuff for either the flight crew to address the cabin or... I mean, you would think somebody would be able to say something along the way, but... Yeah. They didn't. It's kind of weird. It just fell through the cracks. You know what I mean? It has a lot to do with training. And that, that was an industry problem that has since changed. But they found that the absence of, a, of applied hypoxia training at the operator, and to a large extent of other airlines, for airline transport pilots, increased the risk of accidents because of the insidious nature of incapacitation during climb to cruising altitude as right. a result of pressurization anomalies or gradual loss of pressurization. So... Saying there's just no training, no hypoxia training. Like, the pilots didn't recognize they were going into a hypoxic state because they were never trained on it. On what it looked like. So they were losing consciousness and didn't even note it. That's the problem with hypoxia, too, is it's it's something literally different for everyone. Right. Um, There are some situations where they have proven, actually, with the training, pilots can identify enough to at least push the column forward. Right. And make the airplane descend. So that hopefully within a certain amount of time, if they make it back down fast enough, then they can regain consciousness enough to control the airplane. And oftentimes, oftentimes what they also do is don on their oxygen masks. Yes, that too. But more important is descend the airplane. So the next one, I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's actually really long. But we're going to break this down to something very simple. Because they're talking about the operator still. They found that there were organizational safety deficiencies within the operator's management structure and safety culture, as evidenced by dichronic findings in the audits prior to the accident. So, they talk about all the places that they're deficient. Namely, it's quality, safety, operational management, things along those lines. So, training. Training, for sure. So, this is all really important. Basically, what they're saying is there's no... There's no oversight of the operator, and the operator's not doing these things properly. So they're they're operating an airline, but they're operating it very bare minimally. They're not doing the necessary steps to make sure that they're functioning safely and to standards. Right. Which we've seen time and time again. And this is a small operator, so it's not entirely a surprise. But small operators can still be successful and do these things well. So let's talk about my very last finding, which is uh, Cyprus itself. The Department of Civil Aviation. Yes, the DCA. They had no oversight of the airline, basically. The oversight they had was very minimal, so they were never checking anything. They were never making sure that the airline's safety systems and quality systems and operational systems were in place. And they weren't making sure that they were upholding international standards that they had to uphold in order to operate in the international world. Yeah, for the ICAO. Right. Yes. So that was a huge oversight problem. And so the airline had issues and no one was making sure they didn't. So ultimately, it's interesting because they place the blame on a lot of things, which they Huh, just you wait. They have a causes section, which you That I'm going to read verbatim the entire Read and it is it is longer than most. Okay, section one of causes, direct causes. 
Non-recognition of the cabin pressurization mode selector was in the man or manual position during the performance of the pre-flight procedure, before start checklist, and after takeoff checklist. Non-identification of the warnings and the reasons for the activation of the warnings, cabin altitude warning horn, passenger oxygen, mass deployment indication, master caution, and continuation of the climb. Incapacitation of the flight crew due to hypoxia resulting in continuation of the flight via the flight management computer and the autopilot, depletion of the fuel and engine flameout, and impact of the aircraft with the ground. Section 2. Latent Causes The operator's deficiencies in organization, quality management, and safety culture documented diachronically as findings in numerous audits. The regulatory authority's diachronic inadequate execution of its oversight responsibilities to ensure the safety of operations of the airlines under its supervision and its inadequate responses to findings of deficiencies documented in numerous audits. Inadequate application of crew resource management principles by the flight crew. Ineffectiveness and inadequacy of measures taken by the manufacturer in response to previous pressurization incidents in the particular type of aircraft, both with regard to modifications to aircraft systems as well as to guidance to the crews. And continuing factors to the accident, omission of returning the pressurization mode selector to auto after unscheduled maintenance on the aircraft, lack of specific procedures on an international basis for cabin crew procedures to address the situation of loss of pressurization, passenger oxygen mass deployment, and continuation of the aircraft ascent or climb, and ineffectiveness of international aviation authorities to enforce implementation of corrective action plans after relevant audits. So if I had been able to read this instead of all of those findings, this is really a summary of all the most important things I said in the findings. So we didn't have to listen to you that whole time? Sort of. I think there were some interesting things to talk about. (laughs) I think there were some interesting things to talk about. But this this definitely sums up the fact that they don't place the blame on one thing in particular, although the direct cause is ultimately the fact that the crew didn't recognize recognize the problem. The preservation problem, yeah. But ultimately, it comes down to it wasn't set back to where it was supposed to be by the maintenance because it wasn't in any manuals, because it wasn't on any checklist, because the operator didn't require it, because the manufacturer didn't require it, because there's so many things that break down here, and the operator is insufficient, and, you know, all these things. So when you put all these things together, it was kind of a perfect storm that led to this happening. And so they had also a lot of recommendations. I am summing these up a lot shorter than the findings. But there are a handful that are pretty important, and what I thought was interesting is that they did include the response action. So the things that actually did Happened change after, yeah, afterward. So I thought that was interesting, and we will we will go through these here and then uh, discuss because they're it is interesting. They did change some very 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 important things, and we're talking about 2005. So we're talking about well, it's a while ago now, not that long ago. And some really big things changed. 16 years. Yes. That seems so weird to me that that was 16 years ago. Yes. So they recommended to the NTSB that the Boeing company consider taking action to emphasize flight crew training and awareness in relation to A, the importance of verifying the bleed and pack system configuration after takeoff, and B, the understanding and recognition of the differences between cabin altitude and takeoff configuration warnings. Hmm. So... What was done about that? The NTSB responded that the Boeing company was prepared to issue an October 2005 revision to the 737, 300, 400, 500, 600, 700, 800, 900, and BBJ flight crew training manuals. BBJ. Yes, the Boeing business jet. The fancy version. 
to include a new section entitled Air Systems Cabin Altitude Warning Reminding Flight Crews on How to Understand and Recognize the Differences Between the Two Meanings of the Warning Horn and Reminding Them of the Importance of Verifying the Blade and Pack System Configuration After Takeoff. So they wanted to make sure that it was more of an ingrained thing, that that horn means two things. It's not even necessarily to change the horn, but that it can mean two things on the 737. They wanted to train it, ingrain it, and make that just number one priority when you hear that horn. Don't blame them. Yes. Me neither. Train it and grain it. Yep. Patent that. Patent pending? Yes. Copyright? What's the other one? Trademark. 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 Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> they recommended to the NTSB that the Boeing company clarify the aircraft maintenance manual. Maintenance procedure for cabin pressure leakage test to explicitly specify the actions necessary to complete the maintenance test. Currently under the title section F put the airplane back to its initial condition. There were three action items, but none of them referred for the pressure mode selector to be placed in the position auto. What did the NTSB do about this? They responded that the Boeing company had released a temporary revision to the 737-300-400-500 manuals, the maintenance manuals, in September of 2005 to include a specific step to put the pressure mode selector in auto at the conclusion of the cabin pressure leakage test, which I have confirmed is now on all of these manuals, including the newer versions, because my dad told me so. He said it is part of his maintenance manuals. Is it in the checklist to check for that? It probably is. Pre-flight procedure, before start checklist, and after takeoff checklist is what it should have been in. So, to the Hellenic ACC, the Air Traffic Control Center, they recommended on the 2nd of May 2006 that the AAIASB recommended to the Hellenic ACC that it consider the need for adding an indication on the label attached to the target of a flight on the radar scope to draw a controller's attention when a radio communication has not been achieved, and that it established procedures to specify a time limit within which a controller should take the initiative to contact a flight that omitted to report its position when it crossed a compulsory reporting point. I'm going to stop it there. There's more. But their recommendation is to set a reasonable period of time <laughs> to do something about this when you're not hearing from an airplane. So that's really important to me. The response action by the Hellenic ACC was A, an appropriate procedure has been installed in the software for the radar system in order to provide a visual indication to the controller if radio communication between the ACC and an aircraft has not been achieved. And B, the time limit within which a controller should take the initiative to contact a flight that omitted to report its position has been specified to three minutes, and the requirement has been inserted in the ACC operations manual. So what's really key there is that three minutes thing, because if they don't hear from them by that three-minute mark, then they have to do something about it. So rather than just calling them over and 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 over again on all these different frequencies, really they just needed to send somebody up there see what the heck was going on. Yeah. Because there was a much bigger problem going on that they couldn't do anything about just by talking. And they were kind of finding that out, but over the course of three hours, it seems like they should have done something sooner. Okay, actions by the FAA. The FAA did issue an AD. The AD revised the, uh, the manual for normal procedures for the Boeing 737 series to include a procedure, quote, for normal operations, the pressurization mode selector should be in auto prior to takeoff. Thank you. Unquote. So this is in 
all the manuals for the 737 now, it is an AD. It was required to be in there. And then further, they went on to do... The AD also specified changes for the warning horn, that it has to be clarified in the manuals and in the quick reference handbook and such, that they call out that the warning horn is for two things, that it should be trained on, those things. So it is obviously a key, very, very important thing to know that that warning horn also means something different, especially when that is a very, very time-sensitive problem. I don't understand why they... I understand why they have the one sound, because it, you know, it's hard to remember all these different sounds. Mm-hmm. But why can't they have like a verbal... Like they do with some other stuff, yeah. Like... Yeah, like, you know, most new planes, if you don't put the landing gear down, it goes landing gear, landing gear. Landing gear, yeah. So when we talk about, you know, newer airplanes, this is really not much of a problem anymore because now they're all digital display. So every time something is wrong, it just pops up. It just tells you specifically what's wrong on the screen. So now the the modern 737s, when they have a pressurization problem, it just pops up and says cabin altitude. It says cabin altitude, so immediately when they hear the warning, their eyes go straight to the, the screen, and they see there's a cabin altitude problem, they look up and notice that the pressurization panel is not on auto. That's how quickly it would happen now. I mean, it is, like, split-second decision. So now it's so much better designed, so much better regulated, and it, this is just really wouldn't be a problem anymore. It's all pretty much moot because of that. Unless you fly the A380, and you spend the whole time (laughs) clearing codes. And And then you go through 85 checklists just to get to that problem, in which case, you're probably passed out. You can uh, (laughs) go to Qantas Flight 32 for that one. Episode 45. There we go. Excellent. You can hear my thoughts of the A380 in that episode. Yeah, because Brendan was on with us for that one. Yeah. I forgot that, to be honest. So... The final four that I have are all for the... The European Union Aviation Safety Agency. So there should be a U in there, technically. It's just EASA. And then also the the JAA, so Japan. And these don't have actions taken. These are just recommendations. So they recommended requiring all airlines to amend cabin crew procedures so that when the oxygen mass deploys in the cabin due to loss of cabin pressure or insufficient cabin pressure... And if the aircraft does not level off or start a descent, the cabin chief or cabin crew member situated closest to the, the flight deck be required to immediately notify the flight crew. Like, so go that in. they the know. Mass. Well, yeah, and nowadays the airplanes also tell you when the oxygen masks have deployed in the cockpit because they never knew in the cockpit that the oxygen masks had deployed. So that was Which a is problem. like a big problem. Yes. Yeah. They recommend requiring aircraft manufacturers to install in newly manufactured aircraft and on retrofit basis in older aircraft, in addition to the existing cabin altitude warning horn, a visual and oral alert warning when the cabin altitude exceeds 10,000 feet. Hence, we now have a visual warning. They recommend requiring practical hypoxia training as a mandatory part of flight crew and cabin crew training. Hypoxia is huge when Ta-da. you go up high. <laughs> and then, finally... They recommended to the EASA and JAA and the ICO to study the feasibility of requiring the installation of crash-protected image recorders on the flight deck of commercial aircraft. So I thought this was interesting. This is not the first time this has come up. Not at all. Not at all. But I thought it was interesting that they put it in there, and what they're saying is they want cameras in the cockpit. Again. That are crash-protected, just Mm. like your uh, recorders. 
This in, has not been done. No, but in the modern world, you would really think that it could be. I mean, on the 787, I think they probably implemented it on the A350 and such, but that's still, like, kind of an odd thing. Like, it's all not... still, like, external shots and yeah, really nothing of the cockpit. Yeah, so there's, there's a lot of reasons, there's a lot of debate over this, but I think in the modern world, it seems pretty reasonable. Yeah. At least that's my opinion on it. In 2005, it. I can see why it's a little, you know, like, okay, calm down. <laughs> you know? But in 2021, with all the technology we have, I'm sure it could become a possibility. Yes. I would say so. I think this is totally reasonable. I think that's there's nothing wrong with that at all. And I see why they would want it. Well, yeah, yeah because then they... It would be extremely helpful in situations like this. Yeah. A lot of people's arguments against it is that... Could be abused. Privacy rights and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. But you kind of have to accept as a pilot that 10,000-foot rule. Anything below 10,000 feet, anything you do as part of a an airline operation needs to be part of the airplane. I mean, that should just your privacy needs to go out the window anyways because really they should know. They're already using the CVR as part of your Also, oversight. if you're worried about that, what are you doing during flight you don't want to get caught doing? Right. Basically. That's like a, a flagship thing. You just know? don't do anything wrong. And Where it's like, problem. whoa, dude, look how high we are, dude. What? Like, no, you should be acting as professionals. It shouldn't be a problem. So. Yeah. Airplanes are supposed to fly high. <laughs> well, it turns out a CRJ is not supposed to fly at 41,000 feet uncontrolled. If anyone's wondering what the heck we're talking about, please refer to episode 62. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, so that was Helios Flight 522. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This is a, a longer episode. That happens when Brendan's here. Sorry. <laughs> it's actually... That, well, and this was actually... This was a pretty heavy episode. Yeah, this... I mean, there were a lot of findings and a and, lot of recommendations. Well, we never talked about a pressurization event before, so this was kind of a first, too. Like yeah. My, my brain hurts. Yes. My brain it's also a hurts. A lot to consider. <laughs> So thank you all for listening, as always. Thanks to all of our patrons for contributing. But if you are not a patron, you can check Give out... Give us money. <laughs> that yeah, you information. Didn't, you didn't do any of that mentioning today. But if you'd like to check that out, that information's on the website. If you'd like to contribute to this month's listener episode, that information's also on there. This month is when you felt lucky. Next week will be the week that we do the listener episode. So you you got time. And then, again, if you'd like to subscribe to the newsletter or if you'd like to ask us any questions, all that information is also on the website. Also, if you have any feedback on our sound quality, please let us know. We're in a new setup. Again, be gentle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Email us, uh, message us on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, for that matter. Anywhere. We'll oh. find it somewhere. We'll do. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> you live here now. <laughs> you could just you could tell just us. Tell us. No. <laughs> okay, that's cool. All right, thanks again. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll catch you guys next week. Keep, Keep your speed, speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hardlandings Podcast and on Twitter at Hardlandings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at HardlandingsPodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.